This episode of Linux for Everyone is made possible by a long-term partnership with Tuxedo Computers, and it's going to be another monster show, highlighted by a conversation with Bash creator Brian Fox. We're going to talk about the erosion of privacy, his early days working with Richard Stallman, and his brand new project called Orchid. Plus, an update on Lenovo's Linux hardware initiative directly from Lenovo's Mark Pearson, your thoughts on privacy, and much more. This is Linux for Everyone, episode 48, for the week of May 19th, 2021. And it starts right now. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Linux for Everyone and welcome home. My name's Jason, and you are listening to the show that explores the thrilling world of desktop Linux, open source software, and the community creating and enjoying it. Uh, this is episode 48, and it's a beast. Uh, <laughs> that's why it's also a day late, because in addition to this incredible conversation that I had with the creator of Bash, Brian Fox, uh, I have so much to cover. There's brand new hardware from Tuxedo Computers that I want to talk about. There's a whole lot of housekeeping to get out of the way. Uh, I've got a discovery of the week for you that has saved my butt many times. And uh, <laughs> we're just going to roll into it. No no fluff at all in this one. Just so that uh, you can actually finish this episode before the next one <laughs> comes out. <laughs> all right. I need your help with a couple things. And the first thing is I need to collect more Welcome Home tags. Here's what those sound like. Hello, this is Rocco. And we're listening to Linux for Everyone in the good old USA. Welcome home. So use that as an example, and you're welcome to do it in English or in your native language. I actually think that adds a lot more culture and flavor to uh, to the introduction if you do it in your native language. Pozdrav svima! Linux for Everyone sluša se u Hrvatskoj. Welcome home. Uh, and then you can just email it over to Linux for Everyone at pm.me, or if you're in our Telegram group, uh, you can just send me a private message and just use the client to record it, and then boom, it's done. So record one really quick and send it to me. Don't be shy. If you are a little bit shy, that's that's okay. You don't have to use your name, even. If you don't want to use your name, that's okay. Uh, but it's really awesome having all of your countries represented. And the second thing that I need your help with, this is even more pressing Episode 50 is going to be an Ask Me Anything show. You can listen to the first one that I did way back on episode 17. I only have two questions so far, and it's coming up in a couple weeks. So I need your questions. What do you want to know? Uh, do you have a question about Linux? Do you have a question about Croatia or hobbies or really anything? Um, I'm not going to put any any hard restrictions on the type of questions that you can ask. So write one down and send it to me, linuxforeveryone at pm.me. Okay, I could probably throw a lot more housekeeping items at you, but just check the show notes for this episode, which is episode 48 at www.linux, the number four, everyone.com. This episode's discovery of the week is from a developer that I think a lot of you might be familiar with. So if you've ever used TimeShift or Conky Manager or Groot 
or the Ubuntu kernel update utility, which uh, I've always pronounced as Uku, then you are familiar with TG Tech's work. And TG Tech has a wonderful utility called Aptic. A-P-T-I-K. And I'll get this out of the way up front. It does cost money. It is $25, and I enthusiastically believe it's worth every single penny. Uh, I mean, if you've used something like TimeShift, you kind of know what to expect, but this takes it to glorious levels of completion. Uh, It's a utility for backing up all of your data and your settings on a Linux PC. And when I say settings, here is exactly what I'm talking about. All of your uh, launchpad repositories, your third-party app repositories, all of the extra packages that you've installed from there, uh, and it supports apt, flatpak, and snap. All of your user accounts, including your, your login credentials, all of your mount entries, all of your scheduled tasks for each user, all of your icons, themes, and fonts, which is a huge, huge thing for me, all of your home directory data, all of your desktop settings, and the list goes on. Um, so the basic use case for Aptic is if you want to do a complete backup of your system and then do a clean installation and then restore everything and just you know get it exactly to the state where you had it before. It's very simple backup and restore. A slightly more advanced use case is uh, what I did about a week or two ago. I, I had spent three or four days just theming the crap out of my Pop! OS 2010 installation. And uh, that's kind of my on my main PC. And then I have two other laptops that I like to kind of bounce between, and that's the uh, Tuxedo Pulse 15 and uh, the ThinkPad P53. And I wanted all three of these machines to basically be identical. I did not want to reinstall anything. I didn't want to re-theme anything. I wanted all of my... Uh, Linux for everyone and project files and video production files, everything perfectly identical and in sync. So what I did is I kind of created the perfect environment on my main uh, desktop. And then I used Aptic to do a complete backup through that on an external drive. And then I just did a clean install of Pop! OS 2010 on both laptops and used Aptic to restore And just like that, I mean, they're identical. All the theming is there. All the apps are there. All the settings are there. Then I installed SyncThing on all three of these PCs and synced up my Linux for Everyone project folders. And so now I could be be sitting here, uh, which I'm doing right now, on the Pulse 15 laptop recording the show. I could save it. I could walk away for a minute and resume recording it on my desktop because it will have synced up the uh, the Audacity project files. So I love that particular use case for Aptic. But again, I, I really think the most common scenario is uh, just being able to back up your system and breathe a sigh of relief, have a little peace of mind. Because you can also set it to back up, uh, I think, daily, weekly, or monthly to a location of your choice. So Aptic, uh, I know it's it's difficult to buy software on a recommendation without being able to try it out for yourself. But if if what I've described here sounds appealing to you, I, I can certainly vouch for its stability because I've been using it for several months on several different systems. And uh, the developers got a really good track record. 
there's two things to know about the cost. It's twenty five dollars, and it's a, a unlimited. You can use it on unlimited machines, so there's no restrictions there. The only restriction that may bum you out is it will not work on non-Debian distributions. So if you're running Arch Linux, Manjaro, Fedora, uh, CentOS, SUSE, or anything that's not an Ubuntu or Debian-based distro, then it's just not going to work. But I would love to hear about any recommendations you guys might have that uh, software that's similar to Aptic and Scope that also works on you know Fedora and Arch and those non-Debian systems. That would be really cool to hear. So please shoot me an email um, if you can recommend something. Linux for everyone at pm.me. So it's probably no secret by now that I'm a bit of a laptop addict. And a lot of the the specialized Linux laptop companies out there are doing fantastic work when it comes to to bringing us these premium laptop experiences. But I think most of them have been missing the boat in one regard, and that is aspect ratio. I am more of a 16 by 10 guy than I am a 16 by 9. And there's so few of those aspect ratios out there, which is why I am very, very excited to be telling you guys about uh, the brand new, as of today, it's launching for pre-order, the uh, Tuxedo Computers Infinity Book Pro 14. This is their, I think, sixth generation Infinity Book Pro. And let me read you some specs. 16 by 10 aspect ratio, 2880 by 1800 resolution, 400 nits brightness, and a 14-inch display. It just, those display specs tick all of my boxes. Beyond that, there's a lot of other features that that are standing out to me. Uh, The new Infinity Book Pro, the bezels are way smaller than I've seen on their previous models. And this time around, they're bumping it up to 11th generation uh, Intel Tiger Lake i5 and i7 CPUs, which are 28 watts and come with Intel Iris Xe graphics with 96 EUs. And so I'm really curious to see what kind of light to medium gaming that this laptop will support also. And fortunately, I'm getting one in. I don't know when that's that's arriving, but as soon as it does... Uh, I'll definitely have some some more detailed impressions for you guys. But on paper, it looks terrific. And it also features something that I think Tuxedo should be making so much more noise about. And that is the ability to get your own logo or keyboard layout on this machine. Uh, they can laser etch pretty much anything onto the display lid and create an entirely custom keyboard. We're talking like if if you really want to get Klingon, you can get Klingon if you want to. You could have the super key could be, uh, for example, a Linux for Everyone logo or something that you've designed. On the lid, same same deal. You can laser etch uh, a logo of your choice. So that's that's pretty cool for businesses. Or if you just have a you know special piece of artwork that you're attached to. Rounding out all the other specs, uh, we've got Thunderbolt 4 with DisplayPort 1.4. HDMI 2.0 is on board. There's USB-C 3.2 Gen 2, two USB-A 3.2 ports, an SD card reader. Uh, you can get up to 64 gigs of dual-channel RAM and up to two 
NVMe SSDs, which uh, could give you a total storage capacity of four terabytes. So yeah, it's the Tuxedo Infinity Book Pro 14. You should be able to pre-order it by the time you hear this episode. The timeline went something like this. April 2020, Lenovo tells the world that a trio of new ThinkPads will launch later that summer with Fedora 32. In my interview with Lenovo's Mark Pearson and Fedora lead Matthew Miller, a whole bunch of surprises are revealed that shows Lenovo planning to treat Linux like a first-class citizen. Stuff like a Linux equivalent to Lenovo Vantage. Stuff like global availability and shipping. The community happily freaks out, and I freaked out right alongside you. June 2020. Lenovo announces that it will certify its ThinkStation PCs and ThinkPad P-Series laptops for both Ubuntu LTS and Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Every single workstation PC they sell won't just support the distros, they'll ship with them pre-installed. May 2021. So yeah, last year, uh, about this time, actually, in 2020, I was all aboard that Lenovo hype train. They did a fantastic job of getting us excited about Linux being treated as a first-class citizen. Uh, they had the big announcement alongside Fedora, where they were going to release three different laptops globally. There wasn't going to be any proprietary software. It was going to be pure Fedora, pure open source. And then they really blew things out of the water by saying, okay, now we're going to put Ubuntu LTS and Red Hat Enterprise Linux on pretty much every workstation PC that we have. And we're going to have web support and we're going to have a new forum and we're going to be building software so that you get, uh, you know, that equivalent experience on Linux that you would on Windows with stuff like Lenovo Vantage. And then I started hearing all of these, all these rumblings from the community out there. And you guys were saying, yeah, where are these laptops? Uh, I can't get them in Europe, or I can't get them in India, or I can't even get them in the States. And then uh, some of you were coming to me and saying, you know what, I, I talked to their customer support, and they don't even know that they sell consumer laptops with Linux on it. So it seemed like there was a disconnect between the amount of hype and goodwill that was generated and then the delivery of those promises. And during my interview with Jeremy of System76 a couple weeks ago, uh, he had some very bold things to say about Dell and Lenovo's customer service. So Lenovo's Mark Pearson, who is a senior Linux developer over there, he listens to that episode and he sends me an email. Now, it's not, it's not a negative email at all. It's actually very exuberant. And uh, he has a lot of praise for what System76 is doing with uh, Core Boot and open firmware. But he also uh, wanted to clarify a couple of things. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read this email from Mark Pearson. Mark says, the Linux program at Lenovo is very much alive. Last year was crazy slash exhausting slash frustrating slash exciting and was a big learning curve particularly with regards to our internal process and the steps between certifying a platform and actually getting it out to market. COVID and the resulting components issue just added a whole extra layer of pain, but it is what it is. 
And Mark goes on to say, that being said, we do have a bunch of systems online in the U.S., and our 2021 platforms are just starting to roll out. Mark continues saying, we will have worldwide sales too. I'm not going to commit to a date because I got burnt there before by internal issues and delays. Mark says, as Jeremy alluded to, it's really not easy getting these systems out in different geographies, but I'm expecting positive updates soon, and there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Eventually, we'll get Linux up everywhere, slower than I would like, but it will happen. And then he finishes this section of the email by saying, I'm genuinely fascinated to see what impacts it has. This is Mark, I think, showing a lot of transparency, and he showed the same kind of candor when I interviewed him and uh, Matthew Miller last year about this whole thing. I get that it's tough working inside of a corporation when you are an enthusiast, when you are just so passionate about getting these things rolled out and getting stuff happening. Um, so I do appreciate Mark's transparency here. Now, I don't, I don't like being the voice of dissent. I like to keep things positive and, you know, energetic around here. But I've got to present both sides here. Now, Mark said they have Linux systems online in the U.S. And he has a link that I'll share down in the description. Let's go to laptops. We've got a ThinkPad T14, T15, P15, X1 Carbon, X1 Yoga, P15 Mobile Workstation, P1 Gen 3. Now, if I had to guess... I would guess that the the uh, that the ThinkPad X1 Carbon Gen 8 is going to be one of the most popular choices. So let's click through here and see what our options are. This ships free in more than 12 weeks. So uh, that puts us at the end of August 2021 in the best case scenario. Now, the base specs for this system with Linux that ships in more than 12 weeks is Intel Core i5-10210U, 8 gigabytes of RAM, a 256 gig SSD, and 14-inch screen. Okay, remember that. Now let's browse over to the ThinkPad X1 Carbon Gen 8 with Windows and see what the options are. So we have a few different, what looks like uh, pre-built and ready-to-ship options here. This ThinkPad X1 Carbon Gen 8, ready-to-ship the next business day. You order this today, and it ships the next business day. It also has a Intel Core i5-10210U processor, a 14-inch screen, 8 gigs of RAM, and a 256 gig hard drive. This is exactly identical hardware to the one that ships with Linux in more than 12 weeks. And so to me, that's the disconnect. When you say that we're going to treat Linux like a first-class citizen, but then, you know, okay, let's, let's take away the fact that they haven't managed to have global shipping yet. Fine, we're in a pandemic. I totally get that. But when you have a system that has identical hardware and it ships with Windows the very next day, but if you want Linux on it, it ships in more than 12 weeks, that's not acceptable. And that's not treating Linux like a first-class citizen. And Lenovo, you've got to do better. Now, in my interview with Jeremy at System76, uh, we also talked about the kind of customer support that you can expect when you're dealing with Dell developer edition systems that ship with Ubuntu or Lenovo systems that ship with either Ubuntu or Fedora. Let me just play the clip. Because Dell support and Lenovo support for Linux is subpar. Oftentimes when you open a support ticket and you are a Dell customer, 
The primary thing that their level one support will do is try to figure out what version of Windows you're on, and if you're not running Windows, get you to reinstall using the recovery disk that comes with the machine. Really? Yes. They'll just say, and this can oh be verified. God. If you ask, oh, that's not cool. If that's you ask cool. people who buy direct from <laughs> Dell, even for the developer edition that comes with Ubuntu, uh, they will they will drive you to doing a Windows install. What? To and you will have to escalate. So you'll yeah. have to say, well. I bought the developer edition. It didn't come with the Windows installer. I don't want to run Windows. Perhaps they will escalate you and you will get specialized support for for Linux. And almost all of that is true about Lenovo as well. I know a lot of people will say, well, buy Lenovo, buy a Lenovo. Maybe if you get like the X1 Carbon, it will work out of the box. But if you go special and you get like a P51, something running NVIDIA or a Quadro... It can be a real pain in the butt to get Windows, to get Ubuntu working as well as Windows. They may sell it, but they do not really support it at the level that companies like System76 do. Now let me read you Mark Pearson's response. The support, or lack of, comment Jeremy made was somewhat fair, but not 100% accurate. Lenovo does give Linux support, and if you call our support team, they should not be bouncing you or asking you to install Windows. I've personally done a number of training sessions with the support team, and while I recognize it's far from perfect, it is getting better fast. We've got a long way to go and grow, but you have to start somewhere. Now here's the part. Here's the part that I really, really appreciate. Mark sent me a follow-up email, and he said, if people are having issues with our support team, I need to know about it. I've escalated a few cases that I know were misses, and I'm sure there will be more. Feedback is welcome. Mark wanted me to give you his email address in case that you are personally affected by their support or you know somebody who is. So it is markpearson at lenovo.com, or you can also uh, head over to their Lenovo Linux forums if he says, if people really want to let rip publicly. So again, I really, really appreciate the candor and the transparency and it's nice to know that someone that high up the, the ladder at Lenovo is really pushing for a difference. But I think we also have to understand that Mark is just one man, and his team is just a small part of a much, much bigger global corporation. And uh, it, it's got to be frustrating sometimes trying to get those gears moving a little bit faster. I've done a lot of interviews on the show, but I have to say uh, none have been as legendary as this week's guest, Brian Fox. Brian Fox, for those of you who don't know, he created something in 1989 that most of you are probably using on a daily basis, either on your Linux PC or your Mac OS system, the Bash Shell. Brian's been doing free software since before there was a free software foundation in 1985. So his thoughts on the evolution of open source software and the mentality behind it, as well as uh, his, his insights on privacy, are well worth paying attention to. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with Brian Fox. I just, I want to start this off by asking you about your origin story of sorts, uh, because it's, it's right. pretty substantial. So I'm, I'm not that young. It, it says, 
It, it says so on my Wikipedia page as my age is there. So it's not a secret. I'm 61 now. Um, and in the, uh, in the very late seventies, I got into doing software stuff. And, uh, then I started teaching gifted and talented children at, at the Brookline school system. And the pros, the software they were using to, uh, teach the students is called Terrapin logo, which was the logo programming language. And it used to crash a lot. And mm. when it would crash, I would fix it. I would get in there and, and fool around with the uh, actual binary code and, and get it to work again so my students could do the things they needed to do. And one day, the owner of the uh, Terrapin company was walking through, and he saw me fixing it. And he said, oh, you need to work for me. Well, I, I said, okay, sure, why not? So, uh, so I did. I started working for him, and um, I, already w I already had – a relationship, a strong relationship with the uh, MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. Um, Marvin Minsky was a close family friend, so I knew that I knew where he worked, and I was always excited. I was excited about computers and science, and so I used to go over there occasionally. And at this point in my life, I was kind of going over there and getting an education from various amazing individuals that were that were stationed at the lab and Patrick Sobovar and Lee Klotz were two guys that were at the lab and they were also working at this company. And they said, you need to help us with the editor, fix this editor. And the editor was a small version of Emacs. It was an Emacs style mm -hmm. editor. Okay. So I used, so I used a real version of Emacs on over a 300 baud modem at both <laughs> Renick and Newman. And, and I thought, and I thought, my God, this piece of software is so well constructed that I can see its essential beauty. The coding beauty was obvious to me just by using the software. And I became enamored with this type of clarity and structure hmm. in a piece of software. I mean, I kind of, I like structured things. I'm an architect type person. So, so I'm not surprised that that hit me that way, but that really was this kind of eye opening thing for me. And I wanted to work, um, more closely with people who made that type of software. So I built a complete version, of, a, a much more complete version of this editor, um, this Emacs editor, and we called it Amax, and it ran on an Apple II computer in 48K of RAM, but it had MetaX completion and dynamically loaded libraries and PDF markup and all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and I went to Richard Stallman. This was about 1983 or so. I, mm -hmm. I went over to MIT and I saw Stallman coming down the steps. And I said, oh, Richard, Richard. He didn't know who I was. He said, yes. I said, I, I wrote this this thing called Emacs. It's just like Emacs, but it runs in an Apple. And it's, just, it's you know, it's my homage to you. <laughs> and, and he said, well, I don't really think I'm a good distribution point for that. And walked away. <laughs> huh. I was like, okay. I was like, well, oh, the direct approach. All right. Yeah, now I know something about Richard Stallman I didn't know before, right? <laughs> it's a little obtuse and didn't really understand what I was saying to him. Mm -hmm. So so anyway, fast forward a couple of years and um and Lee and Patrick, sorry about my long windedness here, but but Lee and Patrick said, Yeah, you should work with Richard. He's he's talking about doing something brand new. He wants to build a free version of Unix. So I, I went over to the lab and I said uh, I, I knocked on Richard's door and he didn't remember me. And he said, Oh, Patrick says you're a wizard. I said, Oh, well, that's very nice. You know? And, uh, and then we literally ran around the lab a couple times. It's hard to explain, but it's pretty funny. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then we started working on project GNU and that was, that's the start of open source free software. Wow. 
I mean, they're at the birth of it. That's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Now, to to be totally clear, Richard had this 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 idealized idea, this conviction that software should be free, mm-hmm. and and I didn't have that conviction. It's just actually the way software was. I mean. At any point in time, you could talk to any programmer in the lab and say, what are you working on? And they would tell you, and then you would share ideas with them. And if they had a piece of code that you could use for some other project, they'd hand it to you, and then you would use it in that project. And this is kind of how engineers are. They're excited about what they do, and they want to share their ideas and communicate with other engineers. And it was only after Symbolics uh, got started. This is a Lisp machine company that was started by a bunch of people from the lab and they kind of included a large number of people from the lab, but they did not include Richard and Richard was a little annoyed by that and thought, well, whatever they're doing, I can do better. So whatever they started building, he then started building on a a TI Explorer. I can't remember what TI stands for. It's terrible. Texas Texas Instruments. Instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 TI Explorer. And, um, and he kept up with them for a couple of years and, and then, entered me and he was trying to make this Unix thing. And then we started building the project GNU. So I'm going to take a breath now. Wow. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't know if I have zero follow-up questions or 170 follow-up questions, but I, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> God, where do you even, that's, that's our show, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> So I started, I started working there and he said, well, the first thing I want you to do is write the standalone program called info. It's going to be our documentation reader. And we have an idea for documentation format. And I started to build something in Emacs, but uh, we need a standalone piece of software to do that. And I said, oh, okay. And then I wrote my first C program <laughs> and it's called GNU, GNU info. Wow. <laughs> and, 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 and I was struggling a little bit, you know, I wrote this thing, I, um, I think it took me four days or so to kind of get it up and running. And it was, you know, it had all the features that I needed to have. But the but the um, display, the drawing of the screen was really slow because my entire background had been in this kind of micro computer thing where you literally draw every character pixel by pixel on the screen. And so my approach, my approach to IO was you want to draw a character on the screen? I'm going to run over here and put bits in video memory. Like that was how. Wow. That's how you draw things in a screen. Now, of course, in a Unix world, you don't do that. Everything's I.O. is the most expensive thing. So normally you just buffer everything up and then you say, okay, I.O. device, here's the, the, the screen. Just paint the entire screen. And I didn't really know that. And I said to him, gee, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble. It's done, but I'm having trouble with this display. It's really slow. And he looked at the code and then he said to me, your approach to I.O. looks like an attack on Grenada. <laughs> and I said, Okay, you know, one of my students explained about buffering things, and I said, okay, great. And I went away and I, I did that, and I came back, I don't know, the next morning or something. And I said, yeah, I did that, and it's much faster. So here it is. So he looks at the program, and he goes, oh, yeah, that looks great. Now, what about all these features that you're supposed to put on? I said, oh, I did all those. And then, and then he was surprised. I don't think he'd, I don't think he'd worked with other programmers that liked to program the way he liked to program. And so, it was a surprise to him in, in, in a way that I had completed everything already. Hmm. And that the, when I came to him, the problem was that I, you know, didn't, wasn't happy with the speed of the display, right? Not yeah. anything else logically. I want to go back to what you said about that engineer mentality, uh, about the, yeah. the free sharing of information. 
Do you yeah. do you feel like that has changed substantially in the last two or three decades? Yeah, there there has been a shift. The shift started around the time um, people really wanted to monetize the internet, mm. and it, it caused programs to be very valuable in that process. And the amounts of money that were being made during the dot com boom were gigantic, and programmers wanted to partake in that, and so. They started to get focused. These younger people that came out, you know, 29, 30-year-old people mm -hmm. that were around then were um, focused on getting their money. And that meant that they had to follow through with the um, ideas and approaches that standard venture capitalists use, that standard business people use, the idea of um, having your secret sauce and patenting oh, yes. things and oh, having yes. everything be proprietary. That's the only way, you know, while they were doing that, my, my good friend, uh, David Henkel Wallace was building Cygnus, which stands for Cygnus is your GNU support. Um, and he was the, that's the first true free software business. And, and his huh. tagline was, we make free software affordable. They provided service and support for large companies that wanted to use the compiler suite uh, and right, other right. aspects of free software. I don't know if you share the same opinion, but I feel like the entire shift happened around the same time that the pop-up ad was created for the internet. <laughs> I think I, 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 <laughs> I, I, you know? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if that's exactly when it happened, but I certainly agree with you that the pop-up ad is an excellent example of an engineering thing gone wrong, you know, on, on purpose to make money. Right. I was listening to a podcast with the the inventor of that code who regrets it to this day. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> Poor guy. Poor us. Poor us. We're guy, still right paying for that. that yeah, there's a special place for that guy right next to the guy that made the blink tag. <laughs> People might not remember that from the from the uh, from the dot com era. But not every browser supported, for example, tables. I actually wrote um, what I think is the first web database-backed programming language called MetaHTML, and it was it ran server-side, and it was just code that was in your pages that kind of – it it looked like it could be HTML. I'll send you uh, links to that if you want. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. But it also looked a little bit like Lisp, which was one of my favorite languages. Lisp and Scheme are my two favorite languages. I know that we're not really here to mm – -hmm to talk about your history and to do a deep dive on that. But it's, uh, it's, it's a substantial one. I mean, I did a video on the Linux for Everyone YouTube channel about bash scripts and I was just getting my feet wet and it was just, it was just a very, very simple uh, bash script that would use apt to reinstall all my favorite software and then install huh? snap and then use snap to mm -hmm. just in one line. It wasn't very elegant, but it's, you know, something that, and I've seen uh -huh. examples of, of truly brilliant um, automation using Bash. And I mean, what a legacy. So I'm going <laughs> to, I got to tell you a secret. I got to tell you a secret. Don't let anybody know. Okay. I was uh, at Sequoia actually. And, and, uh, oh, man, I know that name. Some other, some other people, yeah, some other people were there and they said, oh, uh, I want to talk to the Bash guy. And I said, fine. Somebody said to me, somebody said to me, what's the best thing about having written Bash? And I said, the, the best thing is, is seeing it show up in places I don't expect. Like ah. I saw it in a Coke machine once. A friend of mine said, my printer is running Bash, right? Like 
Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's cool when people get these really cool uses out of it. You know, now it runs on the helicopter on Mars. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, so it's I, incredible. software I've written is running on multiple planets, right? So it's kind of a weird <laughs> experience. So this guy said to me, wait, wait, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, do you realize all the nuclear power plants in the U.S. do their automation using Bash? I said, what are you talking about? And then he said, if you write software in C, it has to go through this software, you know, accreditation process, a validation process. And it takes years, like two years or more, if you write something in C and want to get it into a nuclear power plant. So all the engineers that work on the power plants just do scripting languages because you're allowed to do scripting and automation. You're just not allowed to write like C code. So they all use like, bash to run the <laughs> nuclear power plants so that, that should make you feel more comfortable are there any like if someone was just getting into linux which a lot of my audience uh is most of oh, the time cool. like a lot of my audience is always telling me i'm just getting into linux and i've been listening to your show just kind of to prepare for it or you know just to learn some right. new things what are some of the best resources that you have come across for people getting into linux in any capacity let me answer that slightly sideways. Okay. People often ask me, how do I get involved in open source software? Um, I think it's great that they want to get involved and they, they want to be part of it. And I tell them, well, you can start by writing some open source software. And they go, oh, I don't know what to write. And it's a huge task. And I don't know how to get started. And I say, well, the, the way every programmer gets a job done, number one, is by scratching their own itch. So there's something that you're using that doesn't work just right. If you, if it bothers you enough, get in there and fix it so it works right and contribute that back, right? I mean, you can just have a GitHub issue and say, here, I wrote the code and there's a pull with PR for that or whatever. And if, you're, if your programming skills aren't quite up to snuff, you can document mm -hmm. exactly what needs to be done because engineers are notoriously bad at doing documentation. And so anybody who pays attention to that, who wants to do documentation, that's extremely valuable. But mostly it's just contribute. There's hmm. always a place you can contribute, you know, just find a, a project that you're interested in. It could be documentation. It could be adding comments to code to help explain functionality that's in there or writing a separate side document right. that, that follows your path through understanding what this piece of software does and how it works. These things are very helpful. And the more of those things we have, the more how to's and guides and things like that, mm -hmm. the fewer times people will say to you, you know, how do I get involved in in Linux. You know, I'm so I'm so happy that you said that because that's a message that I am always hammering home is you don't have to be a code monkey to contribute to Linux. You don't even have to be a writer. You don't have that's to correct. there's so many different approaches. I mean, you could help with marketing, you could help with uh support tickets, you could uh, you know, one one time I was testing uh I was helping my friend Dustin who is a contributor for Ubuntu Budgie. And mm -hmm. uh, I was I was helping him test some UI elements because I happened to have a 4K display at the time, and nobody right. on that team had a 4K display. And so we went back and forth, and and uh, you know he got some good information from that testing, and he's like, "Congratulations, you just contributed to Ubuntu Budgie," and right. I, it just kind of blew my mind. Like, wow, yeah, I'm I'm a tester. I did some testing. Yeah. I made a difference. That's awesome. So yeah, there's so many ways. Yeah. So many ways. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I my pleasure. Appreciate that's your contribution. That's the, it was much. it was that experience that actually led me to create the uh, contribute to Foss repo on GitHub that uh -huh. we we've been building it for like two years off and on, 
And it's just that. It's, it's, uh, it's all of the ways that you can contribute to each project out there, what those projects need, where the links are, and just, yeah, it's been, a, it's been such a fun journey, man. It's, you, never yeah. stop, uh, you never stop discovering stuff, learning stuff. It's, yes. it's always a larger and larger and deeper rabbit hole, but now I'm rambling. So you're here to talk to us about privacy. I am okay. You I'm have a, you have opinions privacy. on privacy, and I, I have opinions on everything. Um, <laughs> well, you know what? You, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say that you have a, a an open door if you want to just show up, like you know, a couple episodes from now for five ten minutes and just give an opinion on something. I would love <laughs> no, that. That's fine. I um, do that. Yeah. So I, I'm gonna unpack some of this. I hope people say privacy, and um, it's important to understand. Excuse me. It's important to understand what people mean when they say the word privacy. Um, maybe, maybe they mean I don't want my roommate to see my bank account number while I'm when I'm doing online banking. Mm. Maybe they mean I don't want my ISP to know which websites I go to. Maybe they mean I don't want a government uh, tracking me, tracking my locations, or looking at my financial transactions. And, and these are all kind of, they're not the same thing. They're, they're different things. There's this inward privacy where, where everything in your house is available to everyone else in your house, but you don't want anybody outside of your house to have access to that, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Um, and then there's this kind of uh, big picture idea of privacy. Um, how can I live my life? Not whether I'm a good guy or a bad guy, but how can I live my life with enough privacy that I have agency to be the person that I want to be without mm. privacy in this way we don't have free speech it's very interesting if I come to your house no recordings no mics and I start talking smack about my president and about the leadership in Croatia and about you know my opinions on these various things I can do that and you and I can have a discourse and a conversation about it Maybe my mind will be changed by that conversation. Maybe your mind will be changed by the conversation. But at no point do I have to worry that something I'm saying, some idea I have, is going to be an offense to a power that will jail me. That's because we have because we have privacy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because we have privacy. But if you and I lived in Russia and we started, and I hope you're not living in Russia right now, and we started talking. Um, badly about the leadership in Russia, and and that became known to the Russian government. They may not be approving of that, and they may say we we so much don't want you to have these conversations with anybody that we're going to put you in jail. Well, this show has uh, between thirty and fifty listeners in Russia. It's, That's good. Yeah, That's good. Um, I'm glad I'm glad they have access to some free information. It's sobering because you and I, we have the freedom to have that discussion that, uh, you know, that discussion, as you said, at at my house. If we were having that discussion online, on Facebook, for example, in a, you know, in a public space on Facebook or on Twitter, do you believe that algorithms and, and, and influences on those platforms can try to reshape our opinions based on what we're saying? publicly does that make sense that was a very it does, it does make sense obscure way of describing that but uh in essence algorithms are are influencing us in some capacity because something or someone is always paying attention 
Often, oftentimes people use uh, the word algorithms to describe something that's not human. But in fact, the reality is humans are doing this and algorithms are the tools they are using to do this. If you see ads on your Facebook that actually interest you, that's because a human went out of their way to find a tool that would provide <laughs> ads to you that you like, right? The, the algorithm did just suddenly do it. The human was like, you know, until he actually starts clicking on these ads, I'm going to keep working on this algorithm. Okay, so that's the, fair. So the that's driver. Fair. So it's very important, I think, because the driver, because people are like, oh, AI is going to take over the world. Machine learning is a horrible thing. Nobody will have any jobs. I say, yeah, hopefully no one will have any jobs. That will be fantastic. <laughs> well, what will we do if we don't have jobs? We'll sit around and create. <laughs> you know, like you do on Saturday when you don't have a job. Yeah. People will do everything you do on the weekend all the time. <laughs> Okay? And if you want to contribute to society, you will contribute to society, hmm. but you won't be required to do that in order to get a sandwich. And that's the big difference. <laughs> so yes, please, AI, take away all of our jobs. I'm not sure that people would share that same opinion, but I, I can see where you're coming from. I told you I got opinions. Yeah. So privacy, so privacy is important, but freedom of information for me is the, is the biggest driver behind that. That's the thing that connects to privacy for me. There are people living in China who can't get to Wikipedia. And that means that they're being denied the ability to exchange ideas and information. And we saw in the United States um, for the, over the past four years or so, what happens when information delivery is mightily manipulated when almost everything you see is propaganda of one form or another and you can't you you don't know the veracity of what you're seeing so you can't make an informed opinion because you don't actually have the information to make the informed opinion well, all you're getting is whatever you're being fed and then you're like okay i you know if that thing is true then all these other things are true but wait a minute if this thing is true then none of those things and it's a uh, it's a horrible place to be so what we really want is Humans is the largest number of humans talking to the largest number of other humans, and that should help us with movement of information and um, the ability to come to consensus on what is true and what is not true and what are objective facts and what are opinions based upon those facts. And those are, those are all different things. So, so my, driver, my driver was there's somebody in China who can't get access to information and, and, and who, if they express themselves, may end up in a, in a bad situation. Maybe they just need more privacy and anonymity in order to do those things, in order to get access to that information. And, and a VPN is an excellent way to do that, but VPNs have the problem of, of basically being centralized traffic. And if something is centralized, then a nation state, a government can come along and attack that central point. There's only one point that they have to attack. And I thought, well, mm. wouldn't it be great if this could just be distributed? If the if, if, if the network community, like it was in the very beginning, the network community was simply run by people who had computers. And then every participant in the network was also a user of the network. Well, that'd be great. That sounds a well, bit like a uh, blockchain, doesn't it? <laughs> it? It is, right? <laughs> a bit like a blockchain. And then and then I thought, well, you know, how's, how is this supposed to work? Well, we can incentivize because we have blockchain and, and cryptocurrency, we can incentivize people. I can have the people who want to use network services pay something and the people who provide the network services get paid. That's an entire ecosystem. It's got its own currency. It has its own set of 
you know, users, buyers and sellers, it, it all makes sense. It doesn't require anything that requires no centralized anything. And that's the original vision behind Orchid. Something that looks okay. like that. Okay. And so uh, from a, I guess from a top-down level, Orchid is a blockchain-driven VPN that is decentralized. Is that a fair description? Nope. Nope. Doesn't sound like it. Okay. <laughs> but, but, I under, but I totally understand why you said that. I do. I mean, 100% understand why you said that. Orchid is, is a network in which the participants of the network also create the, you know, the participating in the network means that you're helping create the network. What, what happens with this network? Well, like I said, it's an overlay. So we're using the existing physical infrastructure of wires and routers and okay. all that stuff that we don't like, centralized things we don't like. We're using those, but we put an overlay on top of it to make that just be physical infrastructure and not actually information infrastructure. So the overlay is the information infrastructure, and that is provided by all the nodes that, that we work in nodes that are created out there. What is the what can you do with that type of network? Well, you can exchange information, but you can also sell resources. Like you could sell compute resources or storage, like Storage does, right? But hmm. the low-hanging fruit, the most obvious thing, is access and bandwidth. Because everybody bandwidth is what we call a bandwidth is what we call a wasting good. If you don't use it, it's just still there. It's also know? it's it also like system RAM. Unused RAM is wasted RAM, so use it up. Who cares if it's bloated? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. That's right. So bandwidth is not something that we normally discuss when we're talking about cryptocurrency and uh, and blockchain, right? We're we're talking about you know this new thing, Chia, where you're using your uh, your storage space. For a mm -hmm. what's it proof of proof of space and time algorithm is what Chia yeah. uses, and then and then you've got obviously uh, you know Ethereum network Bitcoin where you're solving complex math problems essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, That's right. To you know to conduct transactions, but but how does this work with bandwidth? I mean, answer your question is actually super super straightforward. So let me so let me just okay. Kind of do that. I tend to overcomplicate cryptocurrency stuff because it's normally complicated. So so yeah. So I describe this overlay network. I described the overlay network. And the only time I talked about payment was to say somebody who wants to use services pays, somebody who provides services gets paid. That section is the cryptocurrency thing. That's the mechanism in which the payment takes place. The network has nothing to do with blockchain. All right. It's just cool. the network. Okay. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, is it is it now, free to use? Currently, in order to be a upstanding uh, Orchid citizen node provider, you stake, which means you you put some tokens in place. Okay. Prove, okay. Prove that you're a good guy. Sure. Sure. Uh, so so that costs something. So then you'd like to get something back for that. So that's what that's what people are doing today. Okay, and that's uh, but, it's kind of it's a specialized token. It's an ERC twenty token called OXT, the Orchid token. Okay. okay. ERC twenty is a class of token. That is uh, the way you subclass an Ethereum, an Ethereum token. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. uh, so essentially, I can buy this at any of the cryptocurrency exchanges or do it through Orchid. Hundred percent. Okay. That's good. You, okay. you don't. You can't buy it through Orchid. However, however, when you download the app, I believe the latest version of the app lets you go to a, a third party 
that will exchange fiat for orchid tokens. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. And yeah, you know what? You could buy the orchid tokens on Coinbase okay. or on, I think, uh, eight other exchanges around the world. It's a it's an available um, utility token. Gotcha. Do you think that the process of paying for a service with cryptocurrency right now is beyond the reach of average PC users? Yes, I believe that the software that people have created uh-huh. that allow you to pay for things is not is not end user uh, friendly. I completely agree, and that's that's where I, I see mean, that's I the have... biggest stumbling block, really. Like I've looked at I've looked at the Orchid site, I've downloaded the software. I personally know how to navigate, you know, because I have right. an Exodus wallet and I have a Bitrix account and an Uphold account, yes. and you know, I've right. been in that game for a while, but. You know, for an average user to download it on their their Android or their iPhone or their Mac, it just yeah, what needs to happen? Better UI and better UX will make a, a big difference. And also, there's a tendency, an engineering tendency, to say if something, if you think of something that can be done, then you then you should do it. So you just put it all into this thing. But that's not really the way useful technology works your microwave oven doesn't make phone calls that's not that's not a requirement for a microwave oven and you're (laughs) i mean and i you know you can go on and on like this but but the point is that when we use we we don't need general purpose everything in everything it's completely fine that i'm using these uh ear pods here which are single purpose and do a pretty good job at what they're supposed to do which is let me listen and speak yeah and that's what they do and yeah and they work for a while and there's a charging case and all the technology is around that one use case and so there's no reason why we can't have software that is focused on individual use cases and deliver that to people and that will make life a lot easier for them not requiring them to understand the the differences between fiat and crypto and exchanges and all that it's none of that stuff is really necessary mostly you just want to say i want to use you know i want to use a vpn or i want to store something in a cloud and you just click and these things happen yeah exactly exactly you know not that i want to see it all dominated by a company like paypal but you know when you were they're making moves companies like paypal and visa and mastercard to be able to just pay for stuff with your credit card or your debit card or your PayPal account. hundred hundred. Yeah. That's going to be great. And I'm totally, yeah, I'm totally okay with all that. I think that's good. That's smart. That's the way it should be. So let's say, okay, so let's say, uh, you know, I've got, I don't know, I've got a, a solid download and upload speed here at, at home and mm-hmm. I want to provide some of my bandwidth. Is that something that I can do? Yes. Private, like it's securely? Not, yeah, the data that passes through you is encrypted unless you're an exit node, in which case um, when you go to fetch data, if you fetch data from a site that's not HTTPS, for example, hmm. even if you do fetch from a site that's HTTPS in this case, the, the data that you're fetching, you, the node providing that exit, you can see that data. You wouldn't know who was getting the data. Okay. But, but okay. you would be able to see that somebody went to this page, you know, because you're an exit node. Currently, on the Orchid network, the exit nodes are uh, larger VPN services, and Orchid is being used to route you to these larger VPN services that you already have an account with. That's kind ah, of interesting. So it is It is quite a bit goal. like an overlay, really. Yes. That's, that's neat. Okay. What does it take for somebody like me to actually set up right. that node if they wanted to get involved? 
Yeah, so currently, I mean, um, Orchid undergoes pretty rapid development. And so um, focusing on a click and install solution Mm -hmm. uh, hasn't been, that hasn't been the main focus. Um, So currently you have to kind of download the source and compile it for your platform and then you can start running a node and and do things. Okay, I mean, Uh, that's not like, Download source and compile is not a foreign um, concept to a lot of Linux users. No, not not so, for you. Not yeah, for you. but but can you actually run it on Linux? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I I didn't uh, I didn't notice that there was a uh, Windows or Linux clients. I only saw Mac OS, um, Android and iOS uh, actual yes. clients, right? Yes. But you can that. still well, build. But you can still build to compile the source and run it. On on Linux and Windows, okay, that's correct. Okay, okay, nice. Yeah, because yeah, as you know, as somebody who uh, is is interested in in this software and this concept, I would love to be able to just download that client for every device I own, and it, I, yes, or maybe run a router that has that client in it. Oh, interesting. Oh, interesting. Ta-da. Okay, what is that? Uh, oh man, I used it eight or nine years ago, and I cannot remember what it was called. I put W-R-T. it on a Linksys. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so something like that, right? You just flash your router yes, with that, sir. and uh, that's correct. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that plus now pie you, hole, and you're that plus pie hole, and you're set, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. So okay, let me ask you another question. What? Um, yeah. I know that we can't really define what is an average browsing session or how much data am I going through for an average day, but uh, what, what kind of a, a monthly cost would you be looking at if you were using Orchid 24-7? Um, so, obviously, we're not, talking, we're not talking about stuff like multiplayer gaming or streaming Netflix or something like that, but just browsing the web. It's an overlay network, so you already have to pay for some physical network to exist. So we can't get rid of that cost for you. So it just means no matter what, it's going to be more than not having orchids. So there's an incremental cost. Of course. I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, I, I completely cost. understand that, right? But the but the incremental cost should really be incremental and not of the same order of magnitude as the underlying infrastructure. So if you were paying, I don't know what people are paying for their body. Maybe you're paying thirty bucks a month for your internet. I'm, it's kind of not in America. Obviously, <laughs> not in America. <laughs> Oh, I have that's that's an amazing pet peeve of mine. But anyway, oh let's pretend you're paying fifty. But let's pretend you're paying fifty bucks a month. Yeah. for your internet, which some segment of America is doing right, and then you want to add work on top of that. I would be unsurprised if that costs you less than ten dollars a month. I would expect it to cost you on the order of four dollars a month. Oh, that's completely now, decent. Now, yeah, yeah. Now today, I think it's more on the order of ten to fifteen dollars a month. Then there's a upfront kind of cost to get in you have to buy a bunch of tokens and mm-hmm. you know write this instant but pretty quickly that's going to change how so we're gonna <laughs> yeah that was pretty leading <laughs> a little bit <laughs> <laughs> that that will change soon um, as more as more and more people participate in the network the cost per bandwidth bit mm. goes down mm, okay because there's straightforward competition and there's many 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 providers it's just straight supply and demand have you seen good adoption of orchid 
I'm not in charge of the marketing side. Okay. Number one. Okay. Number two, we don't know how many people use Orchid because it's not like we're logging Orchid. Tra- you know, all we can tell you is like, well, these many tokens were spent. Ah, all right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I can't say, oh, there's 100,000 people using it. it. It could be five people using it that spent that many tokens. Or it could be two million people and they spent that many tokens, right? See, that's a good answer, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good answer <laughs> i was uh i was talking to jeremy soller of system 76 last week and um you know he was talking about how they when they sell a system or when someone downloads pop os all they know about that installation is when it has to ping their servers for an update. Like that's all they know. And so they have to actually look at sources like the steam hardware and software survey every month to try and get a, 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 some kind of idea of what their user base looks like. And I kind of, I feel for them because it's, it's, it's nice to have that data for marketing purposes, but I also applaud them because that's, that's absolutely the right approach to take. I feel if you provide a good product, if you have, integrity in what you're doing and you provide a, a product or service that matches your your statements that says that actually does what you say you're going to do <laughs> you're going to get you know a large portion of the of the available market maybe it doesn't happen instantly the other guys out there with beautiful girls smoking cigarettes telling you to use that product or whatever but over time people gravitate towards the solution that they can trust and that does what it says it does. They don't need it to do all these extra things. They just want it to do the thing that it said it was going to do. So I applaud those guys too. So Orchid is completely open source, yes? Yes. Okay. So 100% I percent AGPL3. Yep. Oh, absolutely awesome. So I can share a link yep. to the the GitHub repos and people can contribute. They can awesome. Okay. I will do that. Yeah. Uh let me ask you a much more difficult question. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all. The what is the? I know I've got you. No, I know I've got you. 14 more minutes. What is what is the biggest threat to online privacy right now? And and the reason I'm asking this is uh, I'm having a discussion with our Twitter followers right now, and my assumption this is not anything proven by data or fact, but I feel like we live in a world now where social networks and Android and mobile apps are much more of a threat to our privacy than Windows. Hmm. What's your take? So I think the biggest issue we have, biggest issue we have, and I mean, sorry, this is going to be a kind of a crappy answer, but but I I believe the biggest issue we have is centralization. And that's one of the drivers for building Orchid is that, that it's a decentralized overlay network. But but the reason I say that is because I think I, I want people to actually, if people listening to this podcast, I would love them to hear this statement. You're at home and you open up your computer and you browse to a website. And as you do that, I want you to be aware that there is a company, probably your cable company, that knows your name, your address, your credit card number probably your social security number, your phone number, and every site that you are visiting. And they're storing all this information in a relational database. So you can trust 
your cable provider. But what happens when a nation state comes along and steals that data? Or what happens when the inevitable hack, since every other company on the planet has been <laughs> hacked now, and you, every other day you get an email saying, by the way, your credit card details have been stolen. Since every company is going to hack, what happens when somebody, some nefarious bad guy hacks that? And that guy has all that stuff. And people are always saying, you know, I don't do anything bad. I don't care. I don't need privacy. I don't care about that. I'm like, really? Because you had a conversation with your granddaughter and she talked about something that happened with your cousin. And then you talked to your therapist because of COVID. You're doing it over Zoom. You really don't care if all that information is just completely public knowledge? Of course, people want their privacy. And they should stop pretending that they don't. And then they should admit that they are giving up their, their privacy because they don't even perceive they're giving it up for convenience. And that's the big issue. The convenience. People need the convenience yeah, is, people. is, is a drug. It's a drug and it's a hard one to quit. It really I is. I have, I have been talking about trying to ditch Google for the last two and a half years and I can't do it. That's no, I take that back. One. I take that back. I, I have not resolved to completely do it. You know, I've switched to things like proton mail yeah. instead of Gmail and I've taken right. certain steps, but, uh, there and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about my struggle with that. Is uh, I recently switched to a Huawei P40 Pro, and as you know, no uh, no Google Play services on that phone at all. And right. it is it is shocking to see how many apps do not function without Google Play services. They don't function or they yeah. don't function properly. I installed yeah. Proton Mail on this phone. And the first alert that I got, just want to let you know, push notifications aren't going to work when you get a new email because Google Play services yes. aren't installed. And I was like, oh, my God, That's I left right. ProtonMail to get away from this garbage. Yes, and, exactly. and it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of third-party apps that are not associated with Google at all, but that use Google services. And right. the, internet, the internet itself would cease functioning without Google services. It would not work. That's true. Yeah, this increased centralization is very convenient and extraordinarily dangerous. They're, they're building into our entire life structure these single points of failure. If AWS goes down, everybody in the United States starts crying. And the reason they cry is because they can't see Netflix, right? Like they don't even realize this means that they can't do banking transactions. They're like, Netflix isn't working. <laughs> Facebook's down. Oh, my God. Facebook and Instagram are down. <laughs> ah. Uh, everybody goes to Twitter to complain that Facebook is down. It's hilarious. Um, okay, but but let me let me drill down a bit into this this yeah. concept of centralization versus decentralization. For people who might not be as familiar with those terms, um, let's take a, a service like Twitter. Right, that's a centralized service. A service like Mastodon, which is a Twitter alternative, is decentralized. Right, where you have all these different instances. What is the advantage to that, to having those decentralized services from a privacy so, so point of advantage, view? The, the first thing I had talked about was the cable service provider. They have all this information and, and it's all in one spot. That means that if they turn out to be bad guys, they can do whatever they want with all that information. That means that if the NSA five years from now decides that um, they want to go get you, then they will subpoena all those records because they're stored in a nice central location easily attainable they will subpoena all those records and they will look through every single record to see if they can find anything 
the slightest thing that they can then leverage to yell at you about and make you feel terrible. So if you if you looked up divorce attorneys, mm-hmm. they might say, well, you were looking up divorce attorneys. Were you getting ready to get divorced at this time? What's happening? And then, you know, you might say, no, I wasn't getting ready to get divorced. And they're like, we're going to share this information with your family and talk to them. <laughs> you start thinking, this is insane. I haven't done anything at all. My friend Sally asked me if I knew a divorce attorney. There are at least three Black Mirror episodes about this. So, <laughs> yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not. You didn't a, have to tell me. You didn't have to tell me that. I already know you watched those three episodes. <laughs> yep. God. I, I simply logged into your Netflix account and looked. All right. So, okay. How do I know that the people running the various um, instances on Mastodon, for example, how do I know that I can trust them? How do I know could I can that I can trust the people that are running uh, Fostodon.org, where the Linux for Everyone account is? So this that's a great that's a great question. And so the, the the answer to that is well, you shouldn't trust them. You shouldn't decide that they're trustworthy just because you had a coffee with the the guy one day. So then he's trustworthy. No, you should assume that they're untrustworthy. Hmm. You should assume that everything is is uh, bad and then or evil. And then you should take a look at the software to convince yourself that even when it's evil, this person can't do very evil things. Right. But if you're a person who doesn't uh, have the, the technical ability to analyze that software, then what? You know, yeah. how do you make the decision on what to use? What is safe? What is secure? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, because if you don't have the skill set yourself, you need to rely on somebody who does have the skill set. Hopefully, that is somebody that you already trust in in many other ways. Maybe it's a blood relative, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something of that nature. You actually you actually have trusted before, and they've proven to be trustworthy. And they're technical, so they can tell you the answer. You know, or or it could be that you decide you're going to trust some large group of people that aren't affiliated in any way except that they have all agreed that this thing is trustworthy if if you can find you know 50 people uh that don't have motivators that line up that don't have the same incentives and they all agree that x is trustworthy then you can say okay you know i i don't know for sure but it seems like that's a lot of people to individually have a belief that it's trustworthy well all right let me let me bring this all the way back around and make it personal what are okay. you using? What social networks are you using? What phone are you using? Like, what is your, what's uh, in Brian Fox's bag? I, I will not give you too many deep details. Oh, totally fair. But I will, but I will tell you the kind of normal thing that happens. Uh, I, I use a Mac computer and an Apple iPhone, and I also have an Android phone. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter to me. Um, I, often run Linux. I run Linux on every server process anywhere. And I often run Linux on my, on my MacBook. So in my everyday life and for uh, normal style communications, like the emails you and I exchanged about setting up this podcast, yeah. um, I, I use just COTS, commercial off the shelf software, commercial off the shelf hardware. Uh, like I mentioned before, I'm, I'm using a MacBook and I have an iPhone and, and so forth. Um, there, are, there are other places in my life where I care a lot about uh, OPSEC, operational security. And mm-hmm. in those places, I have devices that are not connected to a network. And 
when I do need to do something that that networks them, I, I go through a firewalled connection like uh, Orchid, for example. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, okay. you're you're definitely probably a disciple of Edward Snowden. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exactly like like for example, I'm doing a podcast with you, and you can see the background behind me. Yes. But if you ever do a podcast with Edward Snowden, he's you know got he's in a black room with you know just blackness around him. <laughs> right, right. No information. Right. You can't tell the size of the room or anything. There's no information at all. It's. I have to say, Brian, this has been overall just a super uplifting and and. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but pri- like uh, privacy is is such a serious issue, and it's it's scary how much of it is being slowly taken away from us. And I feel like we don't quite realize how serious it's getting and, or we don't care, you know, the privacy awareness is a real, is a real issue. Privacy awareness. And you're this, this not caring thing. It's because like I said, it's the convenience factor. People are like, well, I'm not going to not use Facebook. That's not one of the possibilities. I can't not use email. You know, it's impossible. Right. And, and I don't ask, I'm not asking people to not use Facebook or to not use uh, their email or anything. I'm asking them to be privacy aware, understand, understand when you're giving up your privacy, that that's what you're doing. And if you understand that well enough, then you'll be able to make an informed decision about whether you want to do that all the time or part of the time or just for this one convenient thing. You, you, you can use your credit card to buy something online people know that and they do it all the time you can also usually have an uh a one-time use credit card yeah generated for you yeah and you can do that and that's pretty convenient and it doesn't expose your credit card right so maybe that's a convenience that you might consider using even if it takes you an extra five seconds i have to say uh i you know i've lived in europe for about three four years and uh i just recently ditched my US bank accounts and opened a Revolut account. And mm-hmm. they have this thing called virtual visa and it is as simple as basically clicking a button and then using your fingerprint to authorize an authorization and then you can just freeze it or kill it and generate a new one and it's super right. easy. Right. So, so yeah. you are you are generate you are generating at least a secure transaction, you're protecting the sanctity of your credit card number from at least that vendor that you're talking to, you yeah. know, and it's like Fine. If you're going to take away my privacy incrementally, maybe I can put it back incrementally, right? <laughs> in different ways. What, uh, in addition to using something like Orchid, what what do you think is the most privacy respecting browser? Oh, you want me to endorse a browser? Well, no, I'm not. I, if you're not comfortable with it, that's okay. I just it's a question that is always being very uh, hotly discussed in our in our community. So. You know, it's an ex. Yeah. We'll call it an expert opinion, not an endorsement. How about that? So there are some browsers. This goes a bit to the very first thing I said: were the different types of privacy. There are some browsers that um, protect you from the websites that you're browsing, but they do that by knowing the websites you're browsing. <laughs> so, oh my God! <laughs> so thanks for protecting my privacy because you now know everything, right? But are you then protecting my privacy? You know. I. <laughs> Mm. Right. Hmm. Huh. <sighs> um, at least use a browser that that denies um, by default denies third party cookies. For those of you who don't know what third party cookies are, that's when 
you have gone to Facebook and Facebook has given you a cookie and you're, that means you're logged into Facebook and you have a cookie for Facebook. And then you go to, oh, the New York Times. And on the New York Times, there's an ad for Facebook or something that says, you know, like this on Facebook. That little thing that showed up in that website was able to basically access this cookie in order to know who you were. Well, Brian, please say this which means the New York Times knows who came to their website, knows which Facebook user came to their website. Yeah. So yeah. you can block a third-party cookie. You can say, if I'm on the New York Times website, don't let any Facebook cookies leave my, my browser realm and go there. And that will cause the little widget to say, if you log into Facebook, you can like this. I'll tell you something really disturbing and more disturbing to my listeners than the fact that I'm about to say I'm talking about my Mac and not not a Linux machine. I was browsing Forbes on Safari, yeah. Safari on my MacBook Pro, which is no slouch in the hardware department. It's a very specced out machine. And it warned me that the website was making Safari unresponsive and that I should close it. And so I dug into that a little more, and I found that there are between 60 and 79 third-party trackers on yeah. Forbes.com. And that's not an unusual yeah. number for a lot of mainstream websites. And it's downright uh, scary and disgusting. People don't, people don't think about it in the way they think about their physical world. Just imagine, just imagine you're a 27-year-old woman, and you go to the mall, and you you walk into Lane Bryant to buy something, and then you come out and you go over to the the uh, ice cream store to buy an ice cream, and then this guy, and then you're walking away, right? And this guy walks up to you and he says, "Hey, I saw you went into Lane Bryant, you know, and I saw you you got an ice cream over there. You, you want to go out to dinner with me?" <laughs> and, and people. People just get, you know, they're like, ah, that's a nightmare. This is horrifying. That guy should go to jail. And I'm like, what do you think is happening to you every time you browse the website? <laughs> or, you know, or anybody like jumps out from behind the ice cream store and is like, hey, I saw you like vanilla ice cream. Would you like to try our vanilla ice cream? <laughs> Come with me to my vanilla ice cream oh store. Oh, my God. If someone should do that sketch, if they haven't, like uh, what, you know, a typical browsing session session in the real world, what does that look like? <laughs> oh, man, that would be hilarious and frightening well brian thank you so much for your time and your uh your insight and your expertise the, it's been really the fun pleasure was mine pleasure was all mine really uh where it, you know throw us a couple a couple websites that uh the people okay. can if you want people to find you and if not where to find orchid oh okay so first of all if you want to know more about orchid you're going to go to orchid.com orchid is spelled like the flower o-r-c-h-i-d if you're interested in learning a little bit more about free software, I, I urge you to go to um, the Free Software Foundation website, fsf.org. If you're interested in the rights of people uh, surrounding software and privacy, I suggest you look at EFF, mm -hmm. which is the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, EFF.org. If you want to know more about me, there's a Wikipedia page that has a little blurb that tells you interesting things like my grandfather drew the picture of the Monopoly man. Really? Like that. So, oh, yeah, wow. Really. Wow. Yeah. yeah oh, there's cool, so right? many fascinating facts with this episode already. Wow. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. There's All a lot right. of weird stuff like that. Yeah. Well, hey, like I said, seriously, yeah. you, you have an open door anytime you want to show up and no. just, well, thank you, very you know, much. talk about pleasure. totally welcome <laughs> to come back. <laughs> well, well any, anything related to open source or 
uh, Linux or even gaming or technology. Yeah. We can we can stretch it a little bit. Sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks Thank a lot, you very man. Much. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll see you, Jason. All right. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That's going to do it for episode forty-eight. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, make sure to check out Brian Fox's new project, Orchid. Give Aptic a try and stop by to chat with the larger and awesome Linux for Everyone community on Telegram, on Discord, and on Matrix. I have links to all of those places at Linux number four, everyone.com. And a huge, huge shout out to Linux for Everyone's newest super fans, Skeeter Murphy, George L., Michael Staggs, The Linux Experiment, Bearded Giant Games, Alex S., Carlo C., David Thompson, Ricardo Muriel, Jeff M., and Lou Jackson. I'll see you guys for episode 49 next week. In the meantime, take care and take care of each other. Bye.